someone was crying. A strange figure was kneeling beside the late chorus master. It looked like a puppet with the strings cut. "'Can you give me a hand with this sheet, mister?' said Nanny quietly. The face looked up. Two watery eyes running with tears blinked at Nanny. "'He won't wake up!' Nanny mentally changed gear. "'That's right, love,' she said. "'You're Walter, ain't you?' "'He was always very good to me and our mum. "'He never gave me a kick.' "'It was obvious to Nanny that there was no help here. "'She knelt down and began to do her best with the departed. "'Miss, they say it were the ghost, miss. "'It weren't the ghost, miss. "'He'd never do a thing like that. "'He was always good to me and our mum.' "'Nanny changed gear again. "'You had to slow down a bit for Walter Plinge.' My mum'd know what to do. Yes, well, she's gone home early, Walter. Walter's waxy face started to contort into an expression of terminal horror. She mustn't walk home without Walter to look after her, he shouted. I bet she always says that, said Nanny. I bet she always makes sure her Walter's with her when she goes home. But I expect that right now she'd want her Walter to just get on with things so she can be proud of him. Show's not half over yet. It's dangerous for our mum. Nanny patted his hand and absent-mindedly wiped her own hand on her dress. That's a good boy, she said. Now, I've got to go off. The ghost wouldn't harm no one. Yes, Walter, only I've got to go, but I'll find someone to help you, and you must put poor Dr. Undershaft somewhere safe until after the show, understand? And I'm Mrs. Ogg. Walter gawped at her and then nodded sharply. Good boy. Nanny left him still looking at the body and headed further backstage. A young man hurrying past found that he'd suddenly acquired an Ogg. "'Excuse me, young man,' said Nanny, still holding his arm. "'But do you know anyone round here called Agnes? Agnes Knit?' "'Can't say I do, ma'am. What does she do?' He made to hurry on as politely as possible, but Nanny's grip was steel. "'She sings a bit. Big girl. Voice with double joints in it. Where's Black?' "'Oh, you don't mean Perdita?' "'Perdita? Oh, yes, that'd be her, all right. I think she's singing to Christine. They're in Mr. Salzella's office. Would Christine be the thin girl in white?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'And I expect you're going to show me where this Mr. Salzella's office is.' "'Am I? Uh, yeah, yes. It's just along the stage there, first door on the right.' "'What a good boy to help an old lady,' said Nanny. Her grip increased to a few ounces short of cutting off circulation. "'And wouldn't it be a good idea if you helped young Walter back there do something respectful for the poor dead man?' "'Back where?' Nanny turned around. The late Dr. Undershaft had gone nowhere, but Walter had vanished.' "'Poor chap was a bit upset, I shouldn't wonder,' said Nanny. "'Only to be expected, so how about if you got another strapping young lad to help you out instead?' "'Um, yes.' "'What a good boy,' Nanny repeated. "'It was mid-evening. "'Granny and Mrs Plinge pushed their way through the crowds towards the Shades, "'a part of the city that was as thronged as a rookery, fragrant as a cesspit, and vice versa.' "'So,' said Granny, as they entered the network of fetid alleys, "'your boy Walter usually sees you home, does he?' "'He's a good boy, Mistress Weatherwax,' said Mrs Plinge defensively. "'I'm sure you're grateful for a strong lad to lean on,' said Granny. Mrs Plinge looked up. Looking into Granny's eyes was like looking into a mirror. What you saw looking back at you was yourself, and there was no hiding place. 
They torment him so, she mumbled. They poke at him and hide his broom. They're not bad boys round here, but they will torment him. He brings his broom home, does he? He looks after his things, said Mrs Plinge. I've always brought him up to look after his things and not be a trouble, but they will poke the poor soul and call him such names. The alleyway opened into a yard like a well between the high buildings. Washing lines crisscrossed the rectangle of moonlit sky. I'm just in here, said Mrs Plinge. Much obliged to you. How does Walter get home without you? said Granny. Oh, there's plenty of places to sleep in the opera house. He knows that if I don't come for him, he's to stop there for the night. He does what he's told, Mistress Weatherwax. He's never any trouble. I never said he was. Mrs Plinge fumbled in her purse, as much to escape Granny's stare as to look for the key. I expect your Walter sees most of what goes on in the opera house, said Granny, taking one of Mrs Plinge's wrists in her hand. I wonder what your Walter saw. The pulse jumped at the same time as the thieves did. Shadows unfolded themselves. There was the scrape of metal. A low voice said, There's two of you ladies and the six of us. There's no use in screaming. Oh, dearie, dearie me, said Granny. Mrs Plinge dropped to her knees. Oh, please don't hurt us, kind sirs. We are harmless old ladies. Haven't you got mothers? Granny rolled her eyes. Damn, damn and blast. She was a good witch. That was her role in life. That was the burden she had to bear. Good and evil were quite superfluous when you'd grown up with a highly developed sense of right and wrong. She hoped, oh, she hoped, that young though these were, they were dyed-in-the-wool criminals. I had a mother once, said the nearest thief. Only I think I must have et her. Ah, top marks. Granny raised both her hands to her hat to draw out two long hatpins. A tile slid off the roof and splashed into a puddle. They looked up. A caped figure was visible for a moment against the moonlight. It thrust out a sword at arm's length. Then it dropped, landing lightly in front of one astonished man. The sword whirled. The first thief spun and thrust at the shadowy shape in front of him, which turned out to be another thief, whose arm jerked up and dragged its own knife along the ribcage of the thief beside him. The masked figure danced among the gang, his sword almost leaving trails in the air. It occurred to Granny later that it never actually made contact, but then it never needed to. When six are against one in a melee in the shadows, and especially if those six aren't used to a target that is harder to hit than a wasp, and even more so if they got all their ideas of knife-fighting from other amateurs, then there's six chances in seven that they'll stab a crony, and about one chance in twelve that they'll nick their own earlobe. The two that remained uninjured after ten seconds looked at one another, turned and ran. And then it was over. The surviving vertical figure bowed low in front of Granny Weatherwax. Ah, Bella Donna! There was a swirl of black cloak and red silk, and it too was gone. For a moment, soft footsteps could be heard skimming over the cobbles. Granny's hand was still halfway to her hat. Well, I never, she said. She looked down. Various bodies were groaning or making soft bubbling noises. Deary, deary me, she said. Then she pulled herself together. I reckon we're going to need some nice hot water and some bits of bandage and a good sharp needle for the stitching, Mrs Plinge, she said. We can't let these poor men bleed to death now, can we? Even if they do try to rob old ladies. Mrs Plinge looked horrified. We've got to be charitable, Mrs Plinge, Granny insisted. 
"'I'll pump the fire up and tear up a sheet,' said Mrs. Plinge. "'Don't know if I can find a needle.' "'Oh, I expect I've got a needle,' said Granny, "'extracting one from the brim of her hat. "'She knelt down by a fallen thief. "'It's rather rusty and blunt,' she added, "'but we shall have to do the best we can.' The needle gleamed in the moonlight. His round, frightened eyes focused on it, and then on Granny's face, he whimpered. His shoulder blades tried to dig him into the cobbles. It was perhaps as well that no one else could see Granny's face in the shadows. Let's do some good, she said. Salzella threw his hands in the air. Supposing he'd come down in the middle of the act, he said. All right, all right said Bucket, who was sitting behind his desk as a man might hide behind a bunker. I agree. After the show, we call in the watch. No two ways about it. We shall just have to ask them to be discreet. Discreet? Have you ever met a watchman? said Salzella. Not that they'll find anything. He'll have been over the rooftops and away. You may depend upon it, whoever he is. Poor Dr. Undershaft. He was always so highly strung. Never more so than tonight, said Salzella. That was tasteless. Salzella leaned over the desk. Tasteless or not, the company are theatre people. Superstitious. One little thing like someone being murdered on stage and they go all to pieces. He wasn't murdered on stage. He was murdered off stage. And we can't be sure it was murder. He'd been very depressed lately. Agnes had been shocked. But it hadn't been shock at Dr. Undershaft's death. She'd been astonished at her own reaction. It had been startling and unpleasant to see the man, but even worse to see herself actually being interested in what was happening, in the way people reacted, in the way they moved, in the things they said. It had been as if she'd stood outside herself watching the whole thing. Christine, on the other hand, had just folded up. So had Dame Timpani. Far more people had fussed over Christine than around the prima donna, despite the fact that Dame Timpani had come around and fainted again quite pointedly several times and had eventually been forced to go for hysterics. No one had assumed for a minute that Agnes couldn't cope. Christine had been carried into Salzella's backstage office and put on a couch. Agnes had fetched a bowl of water and a cloth and was wiping her forehead, for there are some people who are destined to be carried to comfortable couches and some people whose only fate is fetching a bowl of cold water. "'Curtain goes up again in two minutes,' said Salzella. "'I'd better go and round up the orchestra. "'They'll be in the stab in the back over the road. "'The swine can get through half a pint before the applause has died away.' "'Are they capable of playing?' They never have been, so I don't see why they should start now, said Salzella. They are musicians, Bucket. The only way a dead body would upset them is if it fell in their beer, and even then they'd play if you offered them dead body money. Bucket walked over to the recumbent Christine. How is she? She keeps mumbling a bit, Agnes began. Cup of tea? Tea? Cup of tea, anyone? Nothing nicer than a cup of tea. Well, I tell a lie, but I see the couch is occupied. <laughs> Just my little joke. No offence meant. Anyone for a nice cup of tea? Agnes looked around in horror. Well, I could certainly do with one, said Bucket with false joviality. How about you, miss? Nanny winked at Agnes. Er, uh, no, thank you. Do you work here? said Agnes. I'm just helping out for Mrs Plinge, who has been taken poorly said Nanny, giving her another wink. I'm Mrs. Og. Don't mind me. This seemed to satisfy Bucket, if only because random tea distributors represented the most minor of threats at this point. 
It's more like the Grand Queen Yole than opera out there tonight, said Nanny. She nudged Bucket. It's foreign, for blood all over the stage, she said helpfully. Uh, really? Yep, it means big gignol. Music started in the distance. That's the overture to Act Two, said Bucket. Well, if Christine is still unwell, then... He looked desperately at Agnes. Well, at a time like this, people would understand. Agnes's chest swelled further with pride. Yes, Mr Bucket? Perhaps we could find you a, a white... Uh... Christine, her eyes still shut, raised her wrist to her forehead and groaned. Oh, dear, what happened? Bucket knelt down instantly. Are you all right? You had a nasty shock. Do you think you could go on for the sake of your art and people not asking for their money back? She gave him a brave smile. Unnecessarily brave, it seemed to Agnes. I can't disappoint the dear public, she said. Jolly good, said Bucket. I should hurry on out there, then. Perdita will help you, won't you, Perdita? Yes, of course. And you'll be in the chorus for the duet, said Bucket. Nearby. In the chorus. Agnes sighed. Yes, I know. Come on, Christine. Dear Perdita, said Christine. Nanny watched them go. Then she said, I'll have that cup if you're finished with it. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yes, yes, it, it, it was very nice, said Bucket. Uh, I had a bit of an accident up at the boxes, said Nanny. Bucket clutched at his chest. How many died? Oh, no one died, no one died. They got a bit damp because I spilled some champagne. Bucket sagged with relief. Oh, I uh, wouldn't worry about that, he said. When I say spilled, I mean it went on happening. He waved her away. It cleans up well off the carpet, he said. Does it stain ceilings, Mrs. Ogg? Please just go away. Nanny nodded, gathered up the teacups and wandered out of the office. If no one questioned an old lady with a tea tray, they certainly weren't bothered about one behind a pile of washing up. Washing up is a badge of membership anywhere. As far as Nanny Ogg was concerned, washing up was also something that happened to other people, but she felt that it might be a good idea to stay in character. She found an alcove with a pump and a sink in it, rolled up her sleeves and set to work. Someone tapped her on the shoulder. You shouldn't do that, you know, said a voice. That's very unlucky. She glanced around at a stagehand. What? Washing up causes seven years bad luck, she said. You were whistling. Well, I always whistle when I'm thinking. You shouldn't whistle on stage, I meant. It's unlucky. I suppose you could say that. We use whistle codes when we're shifting the scenery. Having a sack of sandbags land on you could be unlucky, I suppose. Nanny glanced up. His gaze followed hers. Just here, the ceiling was about two feet away. It's just safest not to whistle, the boy mumbled. I'll remember that, said Nanny. No whistling. Interesting. We do live and learn, don't we? The curtain went up on Act Two. Nanny watched from the wings. The interesting thing was the way in which people contrived to keep one hand higher than their necks in case of accidents. They seemed to be far more salutes and waves and dramatic gestures than were strictly called for in the opera. She watched the duet between Iodine and Buffola, possibly the first in the history of the opera, where both singers kept their eyes turned resolutely upwards. Nanny enjoyed music as well. If music were the food of love, she was game for a sonata and chips at any time. But it was clear that the sparkle had gone out of things tonight. She shook her head. 
A figure moved through the shadows behind her and reached out. She turned and looked at a fearsome face. Oh, hello, Esme. How did you get in? You've still got the tickets, so I had to talk to the man on the door. But he'll be right as rain in a minute or two. What's been happening? Well, the Duke's sung a long song to say that he must be going, and the Count has sung a song saying how nice it is in the springtime, and a dead body's fallen out of the ceiling. That goes on a lot in opera, does he? Shouldn't think so. Ah, oh, in the theatre I've noticed if you watch dead bodies long enough you can see them move. Doubt if this one'll move. Strangled. Someone's murdering opera people. I've been chatting to the ballet girls. Indeed. It's this ghost they're all talking about. Hmm, where's one of those black opera suits and a white mask? How did you know that? Granny looked smug. I mean, I can't imagine who'd want to murder opera people. Nanny thought of the expression on Dame Timpani's face. Except perhaps other opera people. And perhaps the musicians. And some of the audience, perhaps. I don't believe in ghosts, said Granny firmly. Oh, Esme, you know I've got a dozen of them in me house. Oh, I believe in ghosts, said Granny. Sad things hanging around going woogie woogie woogie. But I don't believe they kill people or use swords. She walked away a little. There's too many ghosts here already. Nanny kept quiet. It was best to do so when Granny was listening without using her ears. Githa? Yes, Esme. What does Belladonna mean? It's the knobby name for deadly nightshade, Esme. I thought so. <laughs> the cheek of it. Only in opera it means beautiful woman. Really? Oh. Granny's hand reached up and patted the iron-hard bun of her hair. Oh, foolishness. He'd moved like music, like someone dancing to a rhythm inside his head, and his face for a moment in the moonlight was the skull of an angel. The duet got another standing ovation. Agnes faded gently back into the chorus. She had to do little else during the remainder of the act except dance, or at least move as rhythmically as she could, with the rest of the chorus during the gypsy fair, and listen to the Duke singing a song about how lovely the countryside was in summer, with an arm extended dramatically above his head. She kept peering into the wings. If Nanny Og was here, then the other one would be around somewhere. She wished she'd never written those wretched letters home. Well, they wouldn't drag her back no matter what they tried. The remainder of the opera passed without anyone dying, except where the score required them to do so at some length. There was a minor upset when a member of the chorus was almost brained by a sandbag dislodged from a gantry by the stagehands stationed there to prevent accidents. There was more applause at the end. Christine got most of it, and then the curtains closed, and opened and closed a few times as Christine took her bows. Agnes felt perhaps she took one more bow than the applause really justified. Perdita, looking out through her eyes, said, Of course she did and then they closed the curtains for the last time. The audience went home. From the wings and up in the flies, the stagehands whistled their commands. Parts of the world vanished into the aerial darkness. Someone went around and put out most of the lights. Rising like a birthday cake, the chandelier was winched into its loft so that the candles could be snuffed. Then there were the footsteps of the men leaving the loft. Within twenty minutes of the last handclap of applause, the auditorium was empty and dark, except for just a few lights. There was the clank of a bucket. Walter Plinge walked onto the stage, if such a word could be employed for his mode of progress. 
He moved like a puppet on elastic strings, so that it seemed only coincidentally that his feet touched the ground. Very slowly and very conscientiously he began to mop the stage. After a few minutes a shadow detached itself from the curtains and walked over to him. Walter looked down. Hello, Mr. Pussycat, he said. Grebo rubbed against his legs. Cats have an instinct for anyone daft enough to give them food, and Walter certainly was well qualified. I shall go and find you some milk, shall I, Mr. Cat? Grebo purred like a thunderstorm. Walking his strange walk, advancing only by averages, Walter disappeared into the wings. There were two dark figures sitting in the balcony. Sad, said Nanny. He's got a good job in the warm and his mother keeps an eye on him, said Granny. A lot of people fare worse. Not a big future for him, though, said Nanny. Not when you think about it. There was a couple of cold potatoes and half a herring for their supper, said Granny. Hardly a stick of furniture, too. Shame. Mind you, she's a little bit richer now, Granny conceded. Especially if she sells all those knives and boots, she added to herself. It's a cruel world for old ladies, said Nanny. Matriarch of a vast extended tribe and undisputed tyrant of half the ramtops. Especially one as terrified as Mrs Plinge, said Granny. Well, I'd be frightened too, if I was old and had Walter to think about. I ain't talking about that gither. I know about fear. That's true, said Nanny. Most of the people you meet are full of fear. Mrs Plinge is living in fear, said Granny, appearing not to hear this. Her mind is flat with it. She can't hardly think for the terror. I could feel it coming off her like mist. Why, because of the ghost? I don't know yet, not all of it anyway, but I will find out. Nanny fished in the recesses of her clothing. Fancy a drink, she said. There was a muffled clink from somewhere in her petticoats. I got champagne, brandy and port. Also some nibbles and biscuits. Githa Og, I believe you are a thief, said Granny. I ain't, said Nanny, and added, with that grasp of advanced morality that comes naturally to a witch, just because I occasionally technically steal something, that doesn't make me a thief. I don't think thief. Let's get back to Mrs Palms. All right, said Nanny, but can we get something to eat first? I don't mind the cooking, but the grub there is a bit of an all-day breakfast, if you know what I mean. There was a sound from the stage as they stood up. Walter had returned, followed by a slightly fatter Grebo. Oblivious to the watchers, he continued to mop the stage. First thing tomorrow, said Granny, we'll go and see Mr Goatburger, the almanac man, again. I've had time to think about what to do next. And then we're going to sort this out. She glared at the innocent figure washing the stage and said under her breath, What is it you know, Walter Plinge? What is it you've seen? "'Wasn't it amazing?' said Christine, sitting up in bed. Her nightdress, Agnes had noted, was white and extremely lacy. "'Yes, indeed,' said Agnes. Five curtain calls! Mr Bucket says that's more than anyone's had since Dame Jiggly. "'I'm sure I won't be able to sleep for the excitement!' "'So you just drink up that lovely hot milk drink I've done for us.' said Agnes. It took me ages to carry the saucepan up those stairs. And the flowers, said Christine, ignoring the mug Agnes had placed beside her. They started arriving right after the performance, Mr Bucket said. He said... There was a soft knock at the door. Christine adjusted her dress. Come! The door opened, 
and Walter Plinge shuffled in, hidden under the bouquets of flowers. After a few steps, he stumbled on his own feet, plunged forwards, and dropped them. Then he stared at the two girls in mute embarrassment, turned suddenly, and walked into the door. Christine giggled. "'Sorry, ma'am, uh, miss,' said Walter. "'Thank you, Walter,' said Agnes. The door closed. "'Isn't he strange? Have you seen the way he stares at me? Do you think you could find some water for these, Perdita?' "'Certainly, Christine. It's only seven flights of stairs. "'And as a reward I shall drink this lovely drink you have made for me. Has it got spices in it?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Spices,' said Agnes. "'It's not like one of those potions your witches cook up, is it?' "'Er, uh, no,' said Agnes. "'After all, everyone in Lancre used fresh herbs.' Er, uh, there's not going to be anything like enough vases for them all, even if I use the gazunder. The what? The, you know, it goes under. The bed, gazunder. Oh, you're so funny! There won't be, anyway, said Agnes, blushing hotly. Behind her eyes, Perdita committed murder. Then put in all the ones from the earls and knights, and I shall see to the others tomorrow, said Christine, picking up the drink. Agnes picked up the kettle and started towards the door. Perdita, dear, said Christine, the mug halfway to her lips. Agnes turned. It did seem to me you were singing the teetsiest bit loud, dear. I'm sure it must have been a little difficult for everyone to hear me. Sorry, Christine, said Agnes. She walked down in the darkness. Tonight there was a candle burning in a niche on every second landing. Without them, the stairs would have been merely dark. With them, shadows crept and leapt at every corner. She reached the pump in the little alcove by the stage manager's office and filled the kettle. Out on the stage, someone began to sing. It was Peccadillo's part of a duet of three hours earlier, but sung without music and in a tenor voice of such tone and purity that the kettle dropped out of Agnes's hand and spilled cold water over her feet. She listened for a while and then realised that she was singing the soprano part under her breath. The song came to an end. She could hear far off the hollow sound of footsteps retreating in the distance. She ran to the door to the stage, paused a moment and then opened it and went forward and out onto the huge dim emptiness. The candles left burning were as much illumination as stars on a clear night. There was no one there. She walked into the centre of the stage and stopped and caught her breath at the shock. She could feel the auditorium in front of her. The huge, empty space making the sound that velvet would make if it could snore. It wasn't silence. A stage is never silent. It was the noise produced by a million other sounds that have never quite died away. The thunder of applause, the overtures, the arias. They poured down fragments of tunes, lost chords, snatches of song. She stepped back and trod on someone's foot. Agnes spun around. Andre, there's no... Someone crouched back. Sorry, miss. Agnes breathed out. Walter? Sorry, miss. It's all right, you just startled me. Didn't see you, miss. Walter was holding something. To Agnes's amazement, the darker shape in the darkness was a cat, flopped over Walter's arms like an old rug and purring happily. It was like seeing someone poking their arm into a mincing machine to see what was jamming it. That's Grebo, isn't it? He's a happy cat. He's full of milk. Walter, why are you in the middle of the stage in the dark when everyone's gone home? What were you doing, miss? It was the first time she'd heard Walter ask a question. 
And he's sort of a janitor, after all, she told herself. He can go anywhere. I... I got lost, she said, ashamed at the lie. I, I'll be going up to my room now. Uh, did you hear someone singing? All the time, miss. I meant just now. Just now I'm talking to you, miss. Oh. Good night, miss. She walked through the soft, warm gloom to the backstage door, resisting at every step the urge to look around. She collected the kettle and hurried up the stairs. Behind her on the stage, Walter carefully lowered Grebo to the floor, took off his beret, and removed something white and papery from inside it. What shall we listen to, Mr. Cat? I know we shall listen to the Overture to D. Fledeleaf by J.Q. Bubbler, Cond Votua Doinov. Grebo gave him the fat-cheeked look of a cat prepared to put up with practically anything for food, and Walter sat down beside him and listened to the music coming out of the walls. When Agnes got back to the room, Christine was already fast asleep, snoring the snore of those in herbal heaven. The mug lay by the bed. It wasn't a bad thing to do, Agnes reassured herself. Christine probably needed a good night's sleep. It was practically a kindly act. She turned her attention to the flowers. There were quite a lot of roses and orchids. Most of them had cards attached. Many aristocratic men apparently appreciated good singing, or at least good singing that appeared to come from a face like Christine's. Agnes arranged the flowers, lancre fashion, which was to hold the pot with one hand and the bouquet in the other and forcibly bring the two into conjunction. The last bunch was the smallest and wrapped in red paper. There was no card. In fact, there were no flowers. Someone had merely wrapped up half a dozen blackened and spindly rose stems and then, for some reason, sprayed them with scent. It was musky and rather pleasant, but a bad joke all the same. She threw them in the bin with the rubbish, blew out the candle and sat down to wait. She wasn't certain for whom or what. After a minute or two, she was aware that there was a glow coming from the waste bin. It was the barest fluorescence, like a sick glowworm, but it was there. She crawled across the floor and peered in. There were rosebuds on the dead sticks, transparent as glass, visible only by the glimmer on the edge of each petal. They flickered like marsh lights. Agnes lifted them out carefully and fumbled in the darkness for the empty mug. It wasn't the best of vases, but it would have to do. Then she sat and watched the ghostly flowers until... someone coughed. She jerked her head up, aware that she'd fallen asleep. Madam? Sir? The voice was melodious. It suggested that at any minute it might break into song. Attend. Tomorrow you must sing the part of Laura in Il Truccatore. We have much to do. One night is barely enough. The aria in Act One will occupy much of our time. There was a brief passage of violin music. Your performance tonight was good. But there are areas that we must build upon. Attend. Did you send the roses? You like the roses? They bloom only in darkness. Who are you? Was it you I heard singing just now? There was a silence for a moment. Yes. Then let us examine the role of Laura in Il Truccatore, the master of disguise, also sometimes vulgarly known as the man with a thousand faces. When the witches arrived at Goatburger's offices next morning, they found a very large troll sitting on the stairs. 
It had a club across its knees and held up a shovel-sized hand to prevent them going any further. No one's allowed in, it said. Mr. Goatburger is in a meeting. How long is this meeting going to be? said Granny. Mr. Goatburger is a very elongated meter. Granny gave the troll an appraising stare. You been in publishing long? she said. Since this morning, said the troll proudly. Mr. Goatburger gave you the job? Yep. Come up Quarry Lane and pick me special for... The troll's brow creased as it tried to remember the unfamiliar words. The fast track in a fast-moving world of publishing. And what exactly is your job? Head hitter. Excuse me, said Nanny, pushing forward. I'd know that stratum anywhere. You're from Copperhead in Lanka, ain't you? So what? We're from Lanka too. Yeah? This is Granny Weatherwax, you know. The troll gave her a disbelieving grin, and then its brow corrugated again, and then it looked at Granny. She nodded. The one you boys call Auger Hoa. You know, said Nanny, she who must be avoided. The troll looked at its club, as if seriously considering the possibility of beating itself to death. Granny patted it on the lichen-encrusted shoulder. What's your name, lad? Carborundum, miss. It mumbled. One of its legs began to tremble. Well, I'm sure you're going to make a good life for yourself here in the big city, said Granny. Yes. Why don't you go and start now, said Nanny. The troll gave her a grateful look and fled without even bothering to open the door. Do they really call me that, said Granny. Uh, yes, said Nanny, kicking herself. It's a mark of respect, of course. Oh, uh, I've always done my best to get along with trolls, you know that. Oh, yes. How about the dwarfs, said Granny, as someone might who had found a hitherto unsuspected boil and couldn't resist poking it. Have they got a name for me too? Let's go and see Mr Goatburger, shall we, said Nanny brightly. Githa? Er, uh, well, I, I think it's, um, Kesrek de Buddus, said Nanny. What does that mean? Er, uh, go around the other side of the mountain, said Nanny. Oh. Granny was uncharacteristically silent as they made their way up the stairs. Nanny didn't bother to knock. She opened the door and said, Cooey, Mr Gortberger, it's us again, just like you said. Oh, I shouldn't try and get out of the window like that. You're three flights up and that bag of money is a bit dangerous if you're climbing around. The man edged around the room so that his desk was between him and the witches. Wasn't there a troll downstairs, he said. It's decided to break out of publishing, said Nanny. She sat down and gave him a big smile. I expect you've got some money for us. Mr Goatburger realised that he was trapped. His face contorted into a series of twisted expressions as he experimented with some replies. Then he smiled as widely as Nanny and sat down opposite her. Of course, things are very difficult at the moment, he said. In fact, I can't recall a worse time, he added with considerable honesty. He looked at Granny's face. His grin stayed where it was, but the rest of his face began to edge away. People just don't seem to be buying books, he said, and the cost of the etchings, well, it's wicked. Everyone I know buys the almanac, said Granny. I reckon everyone in Lankra buys your almanac. Everyone in the whole Ramtops buys the almanac, even the dwarfs. That's a lot of half dollars, and Githa's book seems to be doing very well. 
Well, of course, I'm glad it's so popular, but what with distribution, paying the peddlers, the wear and tear on the... Your almanac will last a household all winter, with care, said Granny, providing no one's ill and the paper's nice and thin. My son Jason buys two copies, said Nanny. Of course, he's got a big family. The privy door never stops swinging. Yes, but you see, the point is, I don't actually have to pay you anything, said Mr Goatburger, trying to ignore this. His smile had the face all to itself now. You paid me to print it, and I gave you your money back. In fact... I think our accounts department made a slight error in your favour, but I won't go into that. His voice trailed away. Granny Weatherwax was unfolding a sheet of paper. These predictions for next year, she said. Where'd you get that? I borrowed it. You can have it back if you like. Well, what about them? They're wrong. What do you mean they're wrong? They're predictions. I don't see there being a rain of curry and clatch next May. You don't get curry that early. You know about the predictions business, said Goatburger. You? I've been printing predictions for years. I don't do clever stuff for years ahead like you do, Granny admitted, but I'm pretty accurate if you want a thirty-second one. Indeed? What's going to happen in thirty seconds? Granny told him. Goatburger roared with laughter. Oh, yes, that's a good one. You should be writing them for us, he said. Oh, my word, nothing like being ambitious, eh? That's better than the spontaneous combustion of the Bishop of Quirm. And that didn't even happen. <laughs> In 30 seconds, eh? No. No? 21 seconds now, said Granny. Mr Bucket had arrived at the Opera House early to see if anyone had died so far today. He made it as far as his office without a single body dropping out of the shadows. He really hadn't expected it to be like this. He'd liked opera. It had all seemed so artistic. He'd watched hundreds of operas and practically no one had died, except once during the ballet scene in La Triviata, when a ballerina had rather over-enthusiastically been flung into the lap of an elderly gentleman in the front row of the stalls. She hadn't been hurt, but the old man had died in one incredibly happy instant. Someone knocked at the door. Mr Bucket opened it about a quarter of an inch. "'Who's dead?' he said. No one, Mr Bucket. I've got your letters. Oh, oh, it's you, Walter. Thank you. He took the bundle and shut the door. There were bills. There were always bills. The Opera House practically runs itself, they'd told him. Well, yes, but it practically ran on money. He rummaged through the letters. There was an envelope with the Opera House crest on it. He looked at it like a man looks at a very fierce dog on a very thin leash. It did nothing except lie there and look as gummed as an envelope can be. Finally, he disemboweled it with the paper knife and then flung it down on the desk again as if it would bite. When it did not do so, he reached out hesitantly and withdrew the folded letter. It read as follows. My dear Bucket, I would be most grateful if Christine sings the role of Laura tonight. I assure you she is more than capable. The second violinist is a little slow, I feel, and the second act last night was frankly extremely wooden. This really is not good enough. May I extend my own welcome to Signor Basilica? I congratulate you on his arrival, wishing you the very best. The Opera Ghost Mr Salzella! Salzella was eventually located. He read the note. You do not intend to accede to this, he said. She does sing superbly, Salzella. You mean the knit girl? Well, well, yes, 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 you know what I mean. 
but this is nothing less than blackmail. Is it? He's not actually threatening anything. You let her... I mean, I mean them... Of, of course. You let them sing last night, and much good it did poor Dr. Undershaft. What do you advise, then? There was another series of disjointed knocks on the door. Come in, Walter, said Bucket and Salzella together. Walter jerked in, holding the coal scuttle. I've been to see Commander Vimes of the City Watch, said Salzella. He said he'll have some of his best men here tonight. Undercover. I thought you said they were all incompetent. Salzella shrugged. We've got to do this properly. Did you know Dr. Undershaft was strangled before he was hung? Hanged, said Bucket, without thinking. Men are hanged. It's dead meat that's hung. Indeed, said Salzella. I appreciate the information. Well, poor old Undershaft was strangled, apparently, and then he was hung. Really, Salzella, you do have a misplaced sense. I've finished now, Mr. Bucket. Yes. Thank you, Walter. You may go. Yes, Mr. Bucket. Walter closed the door behind him very conscientiously. I'm afraid it's working here, said Salzella. If you don't find some way of dealing with... Are you all right, Mr. Bucket? What? Bucket, who'd been staring at the closed door, shook his head. Oh, uh, yes, uh, Walter. What about him? He's, um, he's, uh, <laughs> all right, is he? Oh, he's got his funny little ways. He's harmless enough, if that's what you mean. Some of the stagehands and musicians are a bit cruel to him, you know, sending him out for a tin of invisible paint or a bag of nail holes and so on. He believes what he's told. Why? Oh, I, I, I just, uh, just wondered. Silly, really. I suppose he is, technically. No, I meant, um, oh, it doesn't matter. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og left Goatburger's office and walked demurely down the street. At least Granny walked demurely. Nanny leaned somewhat. Every thirty seconds she'd say, How much was that again? Three thousand two hundred and seventy dollars and eighty-seven pence, said Granny. She was looking thoughtful. I thought it was nice of him to look in all the ashtrays for all the odd coppers he could round up, said Nanny. Those he could reach, anyway. How much was that again? Three thousand two hundred and seventy dollars and eighty-seven pence. I've never had seventy dollars before, said Nanny. I didn't say just seventy dollars. I said, yes, I know, but I'm working my way up to it gradual. I'll say this about money, it really chafes. I don't know why you have to keep your purse in your knicker leg, said Granny. It's the last place anyone would look, Nanny sighed. How much did you say it was? Three thousand two hundred and seventy dollars and eighty-seven pence. I'm going to need a bigger tin. You're going to need a bigger chimney. I could certainly do with a bigger knicker leg, she nudged Granny. You're going to have to be polite to me now. I'm rich, she said. Yes, indeed, said Granny, with a faraway look in her eyes. Don't think I'm not considering that. She stopped. Nanny walked into her with a tinkle of lingerie. The frontage of the opera house loomed over them. We've got to get back in there, Granny said, and into box eight. Crowbar, said Nanny firmly. A number three claw end should do it. We are not your nev, said Granny. Anyway, breaking in wouldn't be the same thing. We've got to have a right to be there. Cleaners, said Nanny. We could be cleaners and... No, it's not right me being a cleaner now in my position. No, we can't have that with you in your position. 
Granny glanced down at Nanny as a coach pulled up outside the opera house. Of course, she said, artfulness dripping off her voice like toffee. We could always buy box eight. Wouldn't work, said Nanny. People were hurrying down the steps with the cuff-adjusting sticky looks of welcoming committees everywhere. They're scared of selling it. Why not, said Granny. There's people dying and the opera goes on. That means someone's prepared to sell his own grandmother if he'd make enough money. It'd cost a fortune anyway, said Nanny. She looked at Granny's triumphant expression and groaned. Oh, Esme, I was going to save that money from the old age. She thought for a minute. Anyway, it still wouldn't work. I mean, look at us. We don't look like the right kind of people. Enrico Basilica got out of the coach. But we know the right kind of people, said Granny. Oh, Esme. The shop bell tinkled in a refined tone, as if it were embarrassed to do something as vulgar as ring. It would have much preferred to give a polite cough. This was Ankh Morpork's most prestigious dress shop, and one way of telling was the apparent absence of anything so crass as merchandise. The occasional carefully placed piece of expensive material merely hinted at the possibilities available. This was not a shop where things were bought. This was an emporium where you had a cup of coffee and a chat. Possibly as a result of that muted conversation, four or five yards of exquisite fabric would change ownership in some ethereal way, and yet nothing so crass as trade would have taken place. Shop! yelled Nanny. A lady appeared from behind a curtain and observed the visitors quite possibly with her nose. Have you come to the right entrance? she said. Madame Dorning had been brought up to be polite to servants and tradespeople, even when they were as scruffy as these two old crows. "'My friend here wants a new dress,' said the dumpier of the two. "'One of the knobby ones with a train and a padded bum.' "'In black,' said the thin one. "'And we wants all the trimmings,' said the dumpy one. "'Little handbag on a string, pair of glasses on a stick, the whole thing.' I think perhaps that might be a little more than you're thinking of spending, said Madame Dorning. How much is a little, said the dumpy one. I mean, this is rather a select dress shop. That's why we're here. We don't want rubbish. My name's Nanny Og, and this here is Lady Esmeralda Weatherwax. Madame Dorning regarded Lady Esmeralda quizzically. There was no doubt that the woman had a certain bearing, and she stared like a duchess. "'From Lancre, said Nanny Og, "'and she could have a conservatory if she liked, but she doesn't want one.' Uh, Madame Dorning decided to play along for a while. "'What style were you considering?' "'Something knobby,' said Nanny Og. "'I perhaps would like a little more guidance than that.' "'Perhaps you could show us some things,' said Lady Esmeralda, sitting down. "'It's for the opera.' "'Oh, you patronise the opera.' "'Lady Esmeralda patronises everything,' said Nanny Og stoutly. Madame Dorning had a manner peculiar to her class and upbringing. She'd been raised to see the world in a certain way. When it didn't act in that certain way, she wobbled a bit, but like a gyroscope eventually recovered and went on spinning just as if it had. If civilization were to collapse totally and the survivors were reduced to eating cockroaches, Madame Dorning would still use a napkin and look down on people who ate their cockroaches the wrong way round. I will uh, show you some 
examples, she said. Excuse me one moment. She scuttled into the long workrooms behind the shop, where there was considerably less guilt, and leaned against the wall and summoned her chief seamstress. Mildred, there are two very strange... She stopped. They'd followed her. They were wandering down the aisle between the rows of dressmakers, nodding at people and inspecting some of the dresses on the dummies. She hurried back. I'm sure you'd prefer... How much is this one? said Lady Esmeralda, fingering a creation intended for the Dowager Duchess of Quirm. I am afraid that one is not for sale. How much would it be if it was for sale? Three hundred dollars, I believe, said Madame Dorning. Five hundred seems about right, said Lady Esmeralda. Does it? said Naniog. Oh, it does, does it? The dress was black. At least in theory it was black. It was black in the same way that a starling's wing is black. It was black silk with jet beads and sequins. It was black on holiday. It looks about my size. We'll take it. Pay the woman, Giffa. Madame's gyroscope precessed rapidly. Take it? Now? Five hundred dollars pay? Pay? Now? Cash? See to it, Githa. Oh, all right. Nanny Og turned away modestly and raised her skirt. There was a series of rustlings and elasticated twangings, and then she turned around holding a bag. She counted out fifty rather warm ten-dollar pieces into Madame Dorning's unprotesting hand. And now we'll go back into the shop and have a poke around for the other stuff, said Lady Esmeralda. I fancy ostrich feathers myself and one of those big cloaks the ladies wear, and one of those fans edged with lace. Why don't we get some great big diamonds while we're about it? said Nanny Og sharply. Good idea! Madame Dorning could hear them bickering as they ambled away up the aisle. She looked down at the money in her hand. She knew about old money, which was somehow hallowed by the fact that people had hung on to it for years, and she knew about new money, which seemed to be being made by all these upstarts that were flooding into the city these days. But under her powdered bosom, she was an Ankh-Morpork shopkeeper and knew that the best kind of money was the sort that was in her hand rather than someone else's. The best kind of money was mine, not yours. Besides, she was also enough of a snob to confuse rudeness with good breeding. In the same way that the really rich can never be mad, they're eccentric, so they can also never be rude. There outspoken and forthright. She hurried after Lady Esmeralda and her rather strange friend. Salt of the earth, she told herself. She was in time to overhear a mysterious conversation. I'm being punished, ain't I, Esme? Can't imagine what you're talking about, Githa, just cos I had my little moment. I really don't follow you. Anyway, you said you were at your wit's end with thinking what you'd do with the money. Yes, but I'd have quite liked to have been at my wit's end on a big comfy chase long you somewhere with lots of big strong men buying me chocolates and pressing their favours on me. Money doesn't buy happiness, Githa. I only wanted to rent it for a few weeks. Agnes rose late, the music still ringing in her ears, and dressed in a dream, but she hung a bedsheet over the mirror just in case. There were half a dozen of the chorus dancers in the canteen sharing a stick of celery and giggling. And there was Andre. He was eating something absent-mindedly while staring at a sheet of music. Occasionally he'd wave his spoon in the air with a faraway look on his face and then put it down and make a few notes. 
In mid-beat, he caught sight of Agnes and grinned. Hello. You look tired. Er, uh, yes. You've missed all the excitement. Have I? The Watch have been here, talking to everyone and asking lots of questions and writing things down, very slowly. What sort of questions? Well, knowing the Watch, probably, was it you what did it then? They're rather slow thinkers. Oh dear, does that mean tonight's performance is cancelled? Andre laughed. He had a rather pleasant laugh. I don't think Mr Bucket could possibly cancel it, he said, even if people are dropping like flies out of the flies. Why not? People have been queuing for tickets. Why? he told her. That's disgusting, said Agnes. You mean they're coming because it might be dangerous? Human nature, I'm afraid. Of course, some of them want to hear Enrico Basilica and... Well, Christine seems popular. He gave her a sorrowful look. I don't mind. Honestly, lied Agnes. Um, how long have you worked here, Andre? Uh, only a few months. I used to teach music to the Seraph's children in Clatch. Um, what do you think about the ghost? He shrugged. Just some kind of madman, I suppose. Uh, do you know if he sings? I mean, he's good at singing. I heard he sends little critiques to the manager. Some of the girls say they've heard someone singing in the night, but they're always saying silly things. Um, are there any secret passages here? He looked at her with his head on one side. Who have you been talking to? Sorry? The girls say they are. Of course, they say they see the ghost all the time, and sometimes in two places at once. Why should they see him more? Perhaps he just likes looking at young ladies. They're always practising in odd corners. Besides, they're all half-crazed with hunger anyway. Aren't you interested in the ghost? People have been killed. Well, people are saying it might have been Dr Undershaft. But he was killed. He might have hanged himself. He'd been very depressed lately, and he'd always been a bit strange. Nervy. It's going to be a bit difficult without him, though. Here, I've brought you a stack of old programmes. Some of the notes may help, since you haven't been in the opera long. Agnes stared at them, unseeing. People were disappearing, and the first thought that everyone had was that it was going to be inconvenient without them. The show must go on. Everyone said that. People said it all the time. Often they smiled when they said it. But they were serious all the same, under the smile. No one ever said why. But yesterday, when the chorus had been arguing about the money, everyone knew that they weren't actually going to refuse to sing. It was all a game. The show went on. She'd heard all the stories. She'd heard about shows continuing while fire raged around the city, while a dragon was roosting on the roof, while there was rioting in the streets outside. Scenery collapsed. The show went on. Leading tenor died. Then appeal to the audience for any student of music who knew the part and give him his big chance while his predecessor's body cooled gently in the wings. Why? It was only a performance, for heaven's sake. It wasn't like something important. But the show goes on. Everyone took this so much for granted that they didn't even think about it anymore, as though there were fog in their heads. On the other hand, someone was teaching her to sing at night. A mysterious person sang songs on the stage when everyone had gone home. She tried to think of that voice belonging to someone who killed people. It didn't work. Maybe she'd caught some of the fog and didn't want it to work. What sort of person could have that feel for music and kill people? She'd been idly turning the pages of an old programme, and a name caught her eye. She quickly shuffled through the others beneath. There it was again. Not in every performance, and never in a major role, but it was there. 
Generally, it played an innkeeper or a servant. Walter Plinge, she said. Walter? But he doesn't sing, does he? She held up a programme and pointed. What? Oh, no. Andre laughed. Good heavens. It's um, a kind of convenient name, I suppose. Sometimes someone has to sing a very minor part. Perhaps a singer is in a role that they'd rather not be remembered in. Well, here they just go down on the programme as Walter Plinge. Lots of theatres have a useful name like that, like A.N. Other. It's convenient for everyone. But Walter Plinge? Well, I suppose it started as a joke. I mean, can you imagine Walter Plinge on stage? Andre grinned. In that little beret he wears. What does he think about it? I don't think he minds. It's hard to tell, isn't it? There was a crash from the direction of the kitchen, although it was really more of a crescendo. The long, drawn-out clatter that begins when a pile of plates begins to slip, continues when someone tries to grab at them, develops a desperate counter-theme when the person realises they don't have three hands, and ends with the roin 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 of the one miraculously intact plate spinning round and round on the floor. They heard an irate female voice. Walter Plinge! Sorry, Mrs. Clamp. Damn thing keeps holding onto the edge of the pan. Let go, you wretched insect! There was the sound of crockery being swept up, and then a rubbery noise that could approximately be described as boing. Now where's it gone? Don't know, Mrs. Clamp. And what's that cat doing in here? Andre turned back to Agnes and flashed her a sad smile. It is a little cruel. The poor chap is a bit daft. I'm not at all sure, said Agnes, that I've met anyone here who isn't. He grinned again. I know, he said. I mean, everyone acts as if it's only the music that matters. The plots don't make sense. Half the stories rely on people not recognising their servants or wives because they've got a tiny mask on. Large ladies play the part of consumptive girls. No one can act properly. No wonder everyone except me singing for Christine. That's practically normal compared to opera. It's an operatic kind of idea. There should be a sign on the door saying, Leave your common sense here. If it wasn't for the music, the whole thing would be ridiculous. She realised he was looking at her with an opera face. Of course, that's it, isn't it? It is the show that matters, isn't it? She said. It's all show. It's not meant to be real, said Andre. It's not like theatre. No one's saying, you've got to pretend this is a big battlefield and that guy in the cardboard crown is really a king. The plot's only there to fill in time before the next song. He leaned forward and took her hand. This must be wretched for you, he said. No male had ever touched Agnes before, except perhaps to push her over and steal her sweets. She pulled her hand away. I, I, uh, better go and practice, she said, feeling the blush start. You really picked up the role of iodine very well, said Andre. I, uh, have a private tutor, said Agnes. Then he's really studied opera, that's all I can say. I, I think he has, 